I still remember the pump of adrenaline and the dread when the words, fight, fight, rang through the hallways of my public high school in rural North Carolina. Everyone would squeeze into the hallway, trying to see who made up the swirling, rolling, slugging ball of color in the very middle of the crowd. It often seemed that the most energy accompanied a fight between two girls, something known in American parlance as a cat fight. Now, while boys could fight over who took someone else's parking space or who bumped the other one while walking down the hall or even the totally transparent quest for dominance, it was assumed that girls only fought each other for one thing, a boy. Now, I confess that I bought into this assumption, too, so much so that when I saw a fight between two females, my initial reaction was usually along the lines of, have some dignity, don't let a guy see you fighting over him. To watch the bonds of sisterhood be broken so openly seemed a betrayal of our shared gender, our common goals, and the quest to no longer define ourselves by the judgment of men. I understand now that I was responding to the role of catfights in our culture. Catfights began to be portrayed in American culture in the 1950s, first in pornographic and B-rated movies, then moving on to primetime television in the 1970s and the 1980s. Who among us old enough to watch the nighttime soap opera Dynasty has forgotten the famous catfight between Crystal and Alexis? Susan Douglas describes it this way in her 1994 book, Where the Girls Are, Growing Up Female with the Mass Media. On one side was the blonde, stay-at-home Crystal Carrington. In the other corner was the most delicious bad girl ever seen on television, the dark-haired, scheming, career-vexing Alexis Carrington Colby. Crystal just wanted to make her husband happy. Alexis wanted to control the world. How could you not love a catfight between these two? And there it is in a nutshell. Women and their sometimes conflicting goals in life laid bare to be exploited at will by those with political, social, and even religious agendas. A sharp line had been drawn that divided women from other women. When the term catfight was used in the media to refer to disagreements among women on issues like equal rights amendment, it's been said that that term brought three things with it. One, the trivialization of important issues for women, because putting them in a demeaning context trivialized them outright. Number two, the promotion of division rather than unity among women from different ethnic, class, generational, and regional lines. And three, the replacement of the notion of sisterhood with competitive individualism. So no wonder many of us are uncomfortable with today's gospel reading on Martha and Mary. Jesus and his disciples have turned their faces to Jerusalem, and on the way they stop and are welcomed into the home of Martha and Mary. We can imagine Martha scurrying about, getting enough clean glasses out of the dishwasher, reloading the toilet paper, making sure clean hand towels are in the guest bathroom, whipping up a gourmet meal while trying to make it look effortless, smiling and gracious to everyone. Finally, she is absolutely frazzled, and as our text says, she is distracted. So she comes to Jesus and lets off steam. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? 
Tell her then to help me. But Jesus answers with Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. And ever since these words were remembered by the early church community and written down by the evangelist, there have been two types of women, the Marys and the Marthas. I say two types of women because we almost never hear men saying anything like, I'm a Mary living in a Martha world. (laughs) Or, I need to embrace the Mary in me. Instead, the story has been used to divide women into categories, or at least to make a judgment about how we as women should understand our possibilities for participating in the world around us, as if those were competing options, or as if those were the only two options. We have the story in our gospel reading written from a man's perspective, since we believe the gospel writers were most likely men. So I'm going to go out on a limb, so indulge me, And here's a version of the story from the perspective of Mary, written by the poet Ursula Fanthorpe. Now, it helps to know in this that Marty in the poem is Martha. Josh refers to Jesus since Jesus is a form of the name Joshua. And Lassie is Martha and Mary's brother Lazarus. So Marty, Martha, Josh, Jesus, Lassie, Lazarus. Okay, here we go. Of course, he meant it kindly. I know that. I know Josh, as well as anyone can know the Son of God. All the same, he slipped up over this one. After all, a son is only a son when you come to think about it. And this was between sisters. Marty and me, we understand each other. For instance, when Lazzie died, we didn't need to spell it out between us just knew how to fix the scenario so Josh could do his bit, raising Lassie, I mean, from the dead. He has his own way of doing things, has to muddle people first so then the miracle comes as a miracle. If he'd just walked in when Lassie was ill and said, okay, Lassie, you're off the sick list now, that would have lacked impact. But all this weeping and groaning and moving of stones and praying in public and Mark saying, I believe, etc., Then Lazarus, come forth, and out comes Lazzie in his shroud. Well, even a hat wit could see something out of the ordinary was going on. But this was just ordinary. A lot of company, a lot of hungry men, not many helpers, and Mart had a go at me in front of Josh, saying that I'm out there all on my own. Can't you tell that sister of mine to lend a hand? Well, the thing about men is they don't realize how temperamental good cooks are. And Mart is very good, believe you me. She was just blowing her top. No harm in it, I knew that. But then Josh gives her this monumental dressing down, and really, it wasn't fair. The trouble with theology is it features too much miraculous catering. Those ravens feeding Elijah, for instance, I ask you, they'd have been far more likely to eat him. And all those heaven-sent fast food takeaways, quail and manna and that, and Josh himself, the famous fish picnic, and that miraculous draft of fishes. What poor old Mark could have done with was a miraculous draft of coffee and sandwiches instead of a ticking off. And the men weren't much help. 
Not a thank you among them and never thought of help, helping with the washing up. Don't get me wrong. Of course I love Josh, wonder, admire, believe. He knows I do. But to give Marty such a rocket as if she was a Pharisee or that sort of type, the ones he has it in for, it wasn't right. Still, Josh himself, as I said, well, he is only the son of God, not the daughter, so how could he know? <laughs> and when it comes to the truth, I'm Marty's sister. I was there. I heard what was said, and I knew what was meant. The men will write it up later from their angle, of course. But this is me, Mary, setting the record straight. As this story has come down to us, and as it's been interpreted in our tradition, there is a separation between Mary and Martha. It's like the prayer team against the altar guilt. But the proposed dichotomy that we read into this story is not good for our spiritual health. Because our Christian hospitality and service should always be grounded in prayer and learning, and our contemplation should always lead us closer to others. We are all, both men and women, Mary and Martha, and we're probably a few other characters besides. So if we have to make this scene into a judgment of sorts, and it's hard not to since Jesus says that Mary has chosen the better part, then maybe we should make it not about who's hurrying around and who's sitting still, but about who is distracted and who is present in the moment. In today's world, we are pulled in a million different directions, and it's hard to be present in the moment, and it's hard to remember what that one needful thing is. Maybe that's what we gain during those moments of listening to God, in those moments of quiet. But the truth is that we can't stay in those reflective moments forever. At the end of each of our worship services, we're sent out into the world. Just as at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan that we heard last week, Jesus tells the lawyer to go and do likewise. The point of this gospel reading about Mary, Martha, and Jesus might be more about how we do something than what it is that we do. Whether we're sitting still and listening in prayer, or whether we're doing acts of service, the question is, can we remember the one who underlies all that we are and do? Can we not be distracted by all the many things and so end up forgetting the one needful thing? Can we stop looking frantically for what will make things perfect or will make us worthy and know instead that the one thing we need is right there in front of us, ours all along? I think that's the question for Martha and Mary. And I think it is the question for us, too.